2, we are continuing in our study of what God has recorded in the book of Acts. And you're going to see this morning, especially one of the unusual benefits for studying through books of the Bible is that uh, it calls upon you just to teach whatever's coming next. And, you know, sometimes, you know, in the pulpit, it's not wrong. We do this as well. Uh, we feel led to preach in a particular area, feature a particular topic, or address something that God is doing in the midst of our lives. And so that's one way of approaching teaching from the pulpit, but there's another way that where you just, you just travel through books of the Bible, and then the books of the Bible serve up to you certain things that, hey, this needs to be addressed because God has recorded it in his word, and that's kind of what we're going to find ourselves doing here. Interestingly, In this section of the book of Acts. And so we're going to be in chapter 22, but I'm going to hybrid some things together here because Paul's going to find himself in a season here that began in Acts chapter 21. And it's, it's got very limited, you know, he's been traveling a lot. He's been all over the place. We've been putting maps up on the board there for you so you can see where he's been, but, but this has got a real limited venue to it. Paul's going to be in two locations. Uh, He's going to be in Jerusalem for less than two weeks. And then he's going to be in Caesarea, which is a town about 60 miles away from Jerusalem on the coast. And he's going to be there for a lot longer than he probably thought he was going to be there. He's going to be there for a couple of years uh, under arrest uh, during that time, trying to answer for some trials that are taking place. And, And that's the word that is prominent here in the next several chapters. Acts 22 all the way through verse chapter 26, Paul is going to be defending himself. The word defense is going to be used over and over and over again. And Paul's going to start off defending himself to a mob in Jerusalem. Then he's going to move to defending himself to the Jewish council, the ruling Jewish council there in Jerusalem. Then he'll move to a defense before the Roman governor. And then he will move to a defense again before another official, the king over that portion of uh, Israel, a man named Agrippa. And so we're going to kind of get entrenched in some of the same location again and again and again. Uh, so I, I'm going to gather a bunch of points into our, our scripture into today and then again next week that come from this big season in Paul's life. But let me ask you to look at your outline there first at this verse in 1 Peter chapter 3. Because Paul is about to put on display something that Peter teaches to us. And something that's pretty important for us to get our a handle on for how we do this. How do we do defense? Paul's about to have to defend himself. How do we do defense? How do we defend ourselves? How do we defend our lives? How do we defend the message? When is it appropriate? When is it not? Let's look at this passage here from Peter, and then we'll see Paul kind of unfold this passage for us in these chapters. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Lord, it is a a challenging moment when any of us feel like the response that we are to give is a defensive response. That's a a multi-headed monster. Should we defend? Should we not defend? What should we defend? Why should we defend? Uh, Lord, this is a little bit of a complicated topic for us. Uh, But Lord, that's what the apostle Paul finds himself in the crosshairs of defense over and over and over again in these coming chapters. And so Lord, you have chosen to record these. You kind of slowed up the reel 
spent several chapters in one particular area. So Lord, help us to benefit from it today. Give our Give ears to our hearts that we might hear what your spirit seeks to say to us in Jesus' name. I want to just explore in this passage just for a quick moment before I get us back into Acts. There is an interesting relationship here between perceived harm and hope in this passage. Right? He starts off moving us toward just describing, you're, you're going to have to defend yourselves. Be prepared. You're going to have to defend what you believe. You're going to have to defend the hope that is in you. And in those moments, it's going to feel like this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Be prepared that there's coming times in your life where life is going to feel like it's about to harm you. All right? You know, somebody comes up and does this to you, you throw up your defenses. Right? Life is going to walk up to you and look like it's about to sucker punch you. It looks like it's going to harm you. Now, now odds are, don't, you know, don't make this passage irrelevant because sometimes we look at the harm that's in the New Testament and we all have to admit, you know, we live in America, we live in a modern society. You know, we don't face these kinds of issues that these guys were facing. There's not persecution in our land the way there was for these folks. Now, that, that day may change, and your children may say something quite different, quite honestly. I do believe they will. I do believe some of us will before uh, we get too much farther into old age. The country that we live in is not the same country that it was 20, 40, 60 years ago. But in, in all honesty, the, what we've gotten used to experiencing in the realm of persecution doesn't feel like harm like these guys experienced harm. But nonetheless... In some ways, you are going to feel like life is about to harm you. People are about to harm you. Situations are about to turn out poorly for you, and you're going to suffer as a result of that. And so there's a temptation for fear and, and to be troubled by that. And in the midst of all those feelings, Peter is saying, be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is within you. So for a Christian, there's this strange married couple in our lives. This sense of living a life under the cloud of harm and experiencing hope all at the same time. Christians are called to have those two things coexisting together. You're about to be harmed. At least that's what you perceive. And people are scratching their heads as to why you look like you have so much hope while it looks like the hammer is about to come down on your life. And that's what's happening here. And now, just quick, because I, I don't want to spend, I'm not going to spend time in this passage. I just wanted to help set up where we're going to travel and Acts here. But I, I, there's some stuff here that we, we should pay attention to carefully. The admonition that Peter gives of always being prepared to make a defense Always being prepared to explain yourself. Always be ready to put into words, and Evan mentioned the importance of being communicators. Listen, you know, I know some of us aren't great communicators and some of us aren't great with words. Moses didn't think he was great with words, right? Remember, uh, God, you got the right guy. I don't think I'm the right guy. Somebody else needs to do this. You, but whether you think you're good with words or not, never allow yourself to have as your default setting, you're not going to be a communicator. Of all the things that you're wondering why you're here on this earth, I mean, just be absolutely clear to everybody who can open their mouth and speak. You are here to communicate. You're here to live a life that is saying something and declaring something into this world. Now this passage says that might be true, but are you prepared to do that? So apparently there's some preparation for your explanation about why you live life the way you do, what you believe and people who are accusing you and even attacking you and seeking to harm you and watching that happen need to see a person who is prepared well, it was interesting, he says, I think there's some tips for preparation here. One is by treating the Lord as holy. If in your life, Jesus Christ has a unique and defining connection to you, 
that you've come to understand that you're just not a person who's, who's got religion in their back pocket. You know, I became a religious person. I've always been a religious person, but I'm doing life disconnected from my religion until I'm in moments like this. Does Jesus Christ have a unique and defining relationship with you so that wherever you find yourself, you are a communicator for him. You are a spokesman for him. Your life is an advertisement for the Messiah who has come and who has done something for this world. Now, I can remember getting saved. I was in high school. And uh, at some point early on in my salvation, I became aware that there was an opportunity for my life to connect with other people for the sake of the gospel. I became aware of that. I became aware that I could share things with friends and students, that I could relate to teachers in such a way that I could show respect to them and, and honor their role in such a way that I could communicate something about Christ, right? I, I actually remember, I don't know if Frank will remember this. Frank was a, a coach and teacher in high school when I got saved, he actually led me to Christ. And I can remember the first high school I was at, uh, I, I had some kind of a blowout or something. I did something disrespectful to a teacher, which, you know, it was very rare that I would do something like that. Um, and, and Frank introduced me to the idea that, you know, as a Christian, you should probably go and apologize <laughs> to this teacher. Well, I don't think I'd ever apologize to anybody in my life. I'm a pop heard of the word, but what the heck are you talking about? Apologize. I, I became aware that my life was making a statement about Christ. And that I had some sense of responsibility for others. Now I was, I was rough around the edges. Uh, I got saved and I had quite a vocabulary at that point in my life and getting saved didn't make that vocabulary disappear. Apparently it did still poked out. I could be, I could be disrespectful quickly. I just was a specialist in that for some reason. And, but I became aware that, that there was something about my life. I didn't want those things any longer to characterize who I was. And so at, at some point, I think the second high school I went to, I, you know, I'm st- still, you know, a year or so after being a Christian now, I'm trying to figure out how to do this thing and having, and, and, and playing uh, catch up sometimes. Words that come out of my mouth, things that I would say, disrespectful, filthy, just boom out of my mouth. And, and I'm like sitting in the bleachers watching it happen. It's like, oh man, I can't believe I did that again. And so I, I remember coming across this little, it was a little pen. Uh, it was a key and it had Jesus written in the flat part, you know, on the, on the little key part. It had Jesus written on there. I don't know where this thing came from, but I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wear this thing to school with me every day. I put it on my bag. I'd stick it on my shirt. And it wasn't so I could create witnessing opportunities, although it did provide that. It was to remind me I was representing someone else. It was there so that I could look down on a regular basis all day long and look at that and remember, okay, before you speak, you're representing someone. You you have an opportunity to have an impact on on others. I think that's what it means to, to sanctify Christ as Lord, as the owner, as the one who now possesses your life. That in every setting that you find yourself in, you have an opportunity to represent Christ. Be ready. Be prepared. Do something in advance of that moment to have the words be prepared for that moment. And sometimes that's going to mean giving an explanation to the gospel. Sometimes it's going to mean being prepared to restrain what you would have said, big mouth, if you hadn't prepared yourself in advance. And how many of just, we just live with regret for years and years and years. We stuffed our feet in our mouths over and over and over again. And all we got is a story after story of, uh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Well, well, but prepare in advance for that moment. That's what this passage says, by treating Christ as Lord and holy in our lives. Be prepared to make a defense of your beliefs that have produced hope in your life. That word defense, we're going to come across it several times in these passages. It's the Greek word apologia. We get apologetics from this word. It means to give an answer or speech in defense of oneself, a plea. Defense before a tribunal or elsewhere. That's how that word got used. And so be prepared to give an answer 
be prepared to give a defense. But well, here's what's interesting, and this might be a little bit of a challenge for us, and I do want us to feel, feel challenged by this. It doesn't just say, be prepared to give a defense, to, to give an answer to people for the theological ideas that float around in your head, for the convictions about what that passage means versus what another passage means. That's not what it says, right? It doesn't say, be prepared to give a defense for the arguments. That's not what it says either. It says, be prepared to give a defense, an explanation for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to explain to people the confusing presentation you're about to make. When your life looks like it's about to be harmed, you're being slandered. You got a bad physical diagnosis. The economy has turned bad. Uh, Your boss is a manipulative, cruel individual. And you stare at the face of those things and have hope. Be ready to explain that. Because it should create some curiosity. Hope is smellable in life. You get around people who have hope in the midst of moments where they shouldn't have hope. It should arouse curiosity. Be prepared to explain yourself to people. Now, here's, here's kind of a deafening factor. Does your life arouse curiosity or not? Or are you just as miserable as everybody else is? The economy turns sour and you turn just as sour as everybody else. The boss is miserable and you join the rally around the desk of whoever calls the meeting to talk about that miserable SOB of a boss that we all have. No one's curious. You're just like them. You have the same things. They get curious when there's a, a force, a power operating in your life that they don't have operating in theirs, but it gives you hope in your life. Nobody's curious, then it might be because you don't look like you have hope. And if that's the case, wow, we need to do some serious searching of our beliefs. And then second, lastly, be prepared in your character. This passage talks about doing this defensiveness with gentleness and respect and a good conscience, a reverence, a fear that I'm going to speak and present myself in a way to people that's careful and caring. Listen, don't let it be that your character is so out of whack with what your message is that it just undoes your message. This is what it means to be prepared to give a defense. This is a little bit of a peculiar message today because where I'm going to go with it is, quite honestly, I'm going to go where the text takes me today. And it's a little peculiar, quite honestly. It made me, once again, get a refreshed thought as I read the Bible of, Lord, why did you put this here? Which is what we always should be asking when we read the scriptures. Lord, why this story? Why this character? You left out a lot of characters. Why these events, why this emphasis? So I had to ask that as I'm reading through this section, Lord, why this story? I'm divided into two places. One this week is Paul playing defense. And then next week we'll look at Paul communicating his conversion in these moments. Let's talk first for a moment about being defensive because being defensive normally is not a good thing, right? Paul is about to be attacked. Paul is about to be maligned. Paul is about to be challenged. Paul is about to be made to feel like he's got ill motives. He's harmful for the people of God. uh, He lacks integrity. He's done inappropriate things. His message is wrong. There's a lot that Paul's going to get attacked about, right? This this is not an address that any of us enjoy. How many of us just enjoy being attacked? Just love it when you know someone's coming at you. And, and, and they've rallied some ideas that they're about to kind of lump on you and attack you with them, right? No one, no one enjoys being attacked. And for the most part, I think I can say that that way and be careful. Uh, for the most part, there's a lot wrong with being defensive, right? So let me just get this out of the way, but make it clear. Because my, my great fear is that as you observe Paul being defensive, <clears throat> some of us are going to give license to this in a way that you never should, Okay. So be careful to listen to this first point. Usually 
I think usually is the right term. Defensiveness is not a good thing. Usually, right? Example of where, from where we live comes from Nancy Collar and a therapist actually who records with the Huffington Post. She says, most of us are defensive in close relationships. If we're not, we have to interact with people who are. It is the relational disease of our culture and the one that imprisons and destroys intimacy and prevents love and connection between partners and friends. Why are we so defensive? And what are we so afraid of? And how do we make it stop? Recently, I witnessed a married couple interact in a way that was not only tragic, but tragically familiar. In this example, the woman was telling her husband that something he had done had hurt her just in that moment. The pain was evident in her face and tears were coming. His immediate response was to angrily accuse her of frequently doing the same thing to him. I know none of y'all do this. It's so good that we're just observing other people who never do this. How dare she feel upset when she was guilty of exactly the same behavior? She then began defending herself, needing him to understand that she was not a person who would ever do such a thing to someone she supposedly cared about. Without responding to her claims, he moved on to his next defense or attack. If she was hurt by what he had done, it was because she was overly sensitive. It was her problem, not his. Desperate now, the woman pleaded her case, explaining why it was reasonable for her to feel pain, that anyone would feel the way she did. She was not overly sensitive. His behavior was insensitive. Her case was a good one, but, she didn't, but he didn't hear it and couldn't hear it. Sadly, with her original pain rejected and attack, she now had a second layer of pain and misunderstanding to contend with, a second layer of feeling unknown and unloved as a result of the interaction. In the end, nothing was resolved No connection was formed, and eventually they went their separate ways. While this exchange may sound like something that should have happened between eight-year-olds, in truth, its sort is more prevalent with adults. As compared with children, adults have far more complex and sedimented self-stories to defend and more rigid and firmly entrenched egos to protect. So, too, Adults are more attached to and identified with their past hurts and thus more vigilant about preventing them from reoccurring. Like a perfect storm, all these factors then come together to create the defensive interactions that pervade and destroy grown-up relationships. So often when we learn that someone we love is hurting, our immediate response is to start fighting for ourselves, but not to attend to, comfort, or understand their hurt. We set out to prove that the other is wrong for feeling the way they feel, even though it is the way they feel. We've been taught that in the face of pain or conflict, what's most important is that we survive as the one who is justified and right. right, Now that's the category that most defensiveness lands in. Like it or not, growing in the moisture of pride that lives in all of us is this moldy thing in us called defensiveness, self-protection, self-affirmation. I want to be appreciated. I want to be affirmed. If it sounds like you're not going in that direction with me and you're analyzing something I've done, something I may have failed at, I am defensive in my posture. I am fighting and resisting your input. And if, and if I got to go for your throat to get you off my throat, I will, right? That's defensiveness. That's unhealthy. But when we look today at Paul, there is, a, there is a defensiveness that's not unhealthy. There is a defensiveness that gets served up to us that you can't ignore that's in these passages. There is some defense that's not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, uh, it wouldn't have been a bad thing last night if LSU had played defense. <laughs> as an example. Right? Wouldn't that have been nice? How many of y'all would have liked a little defense from LSU last night? How many of you guys would like some defense from the Saints today? Right. Right. There's some defense that's okay, right? There's some, there's some defense. Hey, you know, I'm, you read a little bit about the situation in the Middle East. I think a lot of the Iraqis would have liked their military not to have put their weapons down and run. And let, just let city after city get overrun by ISIS. They would have liked some defense. And there's some defense in Christianity that's not always a bad thing. You know, we, we have invented what I call the rollover policy that it seems as though Christians should never defend themselves. 
Christians should just roll over. You're being attacked, just roll over. They're running over you with the bus, roll over. Let them back up over you twice. Just whatever, you know, this pacifist. This is why Christians can't talk about war because it's kind of like we, do we go to war, not go to war? Is it right for us to attack, not attack? Right, so theologically, there's an argument to be made, but we just feel like this awkward thing because aren't Christians always supposed to just turn the other cheek? Isn't that the Christian thing to do? Be silent before our accusers. I mean, we've got some, we've got some case study for this. But what's interesting is you read Paul, Paul apparently wasn't aware of the rollover plan. (laughs) Paul made a defense for himself. As a matter of fact, this word defense, right? Acts chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And that word's going to be used over and over again. It's used a good bit in scripture. That apology is, is used probably about eight, nine times in scripture, most of the time by Paul. But what I also want you to be aware of that the word apologia, we mix it with apologetics. And so it makes it sound as though, well, Paul's just defending the concepts that are part of the doctrine of Christianity. Uh, The same word is used for Paul to defend himself. And quite honestly, this has been a season, as we said a couple of weeks ago, where Paul's under attack a lot. He's having to defend himself here, but he's already had Christians attacking him in Corinth. And he's had to defend himself there, right? So you'll, you, you'll see Paul use the word this way. In Acts 24, Paul defended his behavior from false accusations, right? These guys who were attacking and slandering Paul, they weren't just saying, uh, we'd like to point out that we have a, a doctrinal difference between us and the, and the apostle Paul. What it is that he has to say about the doctrine of the Messiah. We'd like to disagree on that. No, no, they just started slandering him. This guy's against Moses. He's against the temple. Paul has to stand up and say, well, no, 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 I'm not. This guy has brought Greeks into the temple. No, I didn't. Right? They're slandering him. He's got ill motives in what he's doing. So then, and this is often the case. We get into a discussion about doctrine and it, it, it gets personal. Because this is a light and darkness issue. And so Paul finds himself in that predicament. But, you know, if you visit Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, Paul makes a defense to those who would examine him. This is my defense to those of you who would examine me. Not just what I'm teaching, you're examining me. 2 Timothy, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. He strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. Paul had to give a defense of himself in a Roman court system. And 2 Corinthians, we'll see in these passages as well, Paul declaring that he was engaged in a debate with the Corinthians and what that was about, right? So Paul defends himself. Now, I want to just show you some observations from these passages and point out a few things about Paul's, I call them techniques because they are techniques in some ways. Paul's an arguer, and he's got some techniques in how he does this, and there's some responses as well. So let me just give us a few thoughts in these categories. First, Paul's defense makes an attempt at undermining their perspective. The mob's got a perspective on Paul. Paul's going to seek to undermine their perspective and convince them of his own perspective. All right, now just as, as a... Again, go back to my admonition. Please don't be irresponsible with this message today. Because that is what Paul's about to do, and I'm going to read it to you. But please don't take this out of here and use it on your husband or your wife when you get home. Relationally, it does not do well for you to learn how to undermine someone else's perspective and justify yours. (laughs) Okay, that that, you may be accurate in doing that, but relationally, it's not going to work well. It's not going to go well with you, okay? But I just want you to see that is exactly what Paul does. The mob has risen up against him. They, they, they want to take this guy out. They have just cause, they say, for wanting to do that. Verse 2. He's making his defense and he says, When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, he's, he's pulling some rank here. This guy's famous. Gamaliel is a, a famous teacher. And so many would be scratching their heads going, you got to be kidding me. It's like saying you went to Harvard kind of thing. 
according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. All right, so here's what Paul does. He says, your perspective on me is that I, I'm, I'm, not for the, I'm not for Judaism, I'm not for the law, I'm not for the God of the Old Testament, the one monotheistic God amongst all these Gentile gods. I'm not for him. That's your perspective. You couldn't be more wrong. This is how Paul responds to them. You couldn't be more wrong. You don't know me. This is who I am. And he presents his resume to them, flatly disputing their accusation about who he is. This this is Paul making an argument. And now he's going to undermine them or share why it is that his perspective is the right one. Verse six, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, And was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So they attack Paul. They say that his message doesn't represent God. It's not accurate. It's destructive to God's purpose and to God's people. Paul responds to that. Paul flat out comes out and says, it's not true. What you're saying is not true. This is where Paul doesn't feature the rollover plan here, does he? Paul doesn't turn. He doesn't try to be nice about what they've said. He doesn't, try, he doesn't try to accommodate what they've said, which I'm not saying that's wrong, especially if you're relationally receiving criticism. But in this setting, an argument is made for Paul doesn't accommodate their false accusations. He just comes right out and says, you don't know me. You're misrepresenting me. And not only that, it's not that what I'm saying is wrong. It's that your perspective is wrong. Let me, let me tell you what happened to me. This Messiah that you claim you believe in, this Messiah you've been waiting for, he appeared to me and he shared with me and revealed to me and, and Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he's going to make an argument for why he's right and they're wrong. This is Paul. Now, let me just say this because <clears throat> this is a, there is a context for this. Paul's not doing this with his best friend. This is a hostile, unbelieving crowd. So some lessons to be learned relationally as well as just how we conduct ourselves with people. But Paul's having to give a defense of himself. And, and I can say this because I do think we have, we have taught, I've taught, and I want to come as close to teaching it again today as I can. Usually defensiveness is wrong. Usually defensiveness is not a good posture, but we have taught that and taught that and taught that so much that we don't have any room for this. When somebody does this to us, we come to somebody and we 
make assumptions about who they are. We describe what they've done. We, we've got maybe bad information mixed in with some good information. And we present that to them. And, and we don't have a category for them to do what Paul did. For them to turn around and say, well, uh, Keith, uh, well, first of all, let me just say this. You're wrong about me. You're inaccurate. That's not, that's not who I am. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. Uh, and, and, and second, let me explain to you why I believe I'm right. That's what Paul does here. And I think sometimes we have made defensiveness so out of bounds for Christians that we don't know what to do when people do that to us. We just thought they're just supposed to roll over and let me criticize them. I'm just coming, you know, we don't criticize, but we bring observations, right? Is that what we do? Just observe this. Um, It'd be helpful for us to be careful that when we do bring observations that we're not bringing judgments. Because an observation says, you know what? I don't really know how to assess this, really. I don't see, I don't see your heart. I don't see enough information to assess this. So, you know, I'm just sharing something with you without judgment. Please don't feel a judgment here. This is just a, I may not even be seeing it right. That's how we should approach people. But sometimes we have a hard time approaching one another because we're not coming with observations. We're coming with judgments. And my job is to convince you how wrong you are. Not just to give you some information that I might be wrong about, but to convince you of how wrong you are. So that makes it very hard to have that conversation, which is one of the reasons why we don't have confrontational moments with each other. Because we're just coming wrong. You, you don't need, you know, the Holy Spirit's in people's lives to convict them. You don't need to do that. Well, what if I come and I share something and they don't agree with me? Well, what if, what if you're talking to the Apostle Paul? But if you come and share something, he turns around and pulls one of these on you. He says, well, well, two things real quick in response. One, I, I don't think you're accurate in what you're saying about me. Uh, secondly, I think I'm right. And I, I think your perspective is wrong. And I, you know, don't, don't do the wrong thing with this, but, but don't live in a rollover plan either. Or there is an appropriate place for you just to acknowledge the facts as they are and have an open and honest discussion about this. I notice Paul didn't defend himself against the charge that he was a bad Jew and hostile to God's people. He, he didn't even try to agree. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. In other places, Paul did say, hey, you know, you think I'm bad? Look, of sinners, I'm chief. I'm worse than what you think I am. So there's an appropriate place for us to do that. But in this place, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, hey, listen, you know, you mob, you guys are all worked up. Listen, if you really knew me, if you think I'm a louse now, if you really got to know me, wow, you really know I'm a louse. Uh, He doesn't do that. But I know sometimes we kind of feel like that's what we need to do. And that's not wrong for us to try and build a bridge into someone's observation or criticism. But neither is it always necessary. Paul doesn't seem to do it here. Paul defended himself and protested his scheduled flogging, right? This... Bad crowd situation advances. He gets rescued by the Roman uh, centurion there in verse 25. This guy can't, Paul just spoke in a dialect the Roman guy doesn't get. So he doesn't understand what Paul's explanation is to this crowd. He just knows the crowd is violent. They're hostile. So he wants to beat it out of Paul. He wants to beat Paul's brains in and get out of him. Why are these people so mad at you? So he stripes him, he strings him up, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, uh, <laughs> I don't know if he did it like this, but I'm just curious, you know, Paul, a little gift of sarcasm. Uh, it, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? He, he cites case law here. He pulls the law out on this guy. As a matter of fact, had this man beaten a Roman citizen, his butt would have been in serious trouble. Because it was a serious violation of law. Now, he doesn't know Paul's a Roman citizen. Most people weren't Roman citizens, but Paul was. And, and Paul pulls his card out. You know, hey, I'm a Sam's Club member. Hello? That's, that's about the only card I got. You know, I was like, not sure that works real well, you know, being pummeled by the police. And it's like, hey, do you know I'm a Sam's Club member? Paul pulls that out. Paul defended himself and made full use of the legal court system that was available to him, right? A little bit later, fast forward, chapter 25. This is another defense moment where Paul's having to defend himself. Verse uh, 6. This is 
It says, after he had stayed among them, not more than eight or 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. This is the Roman governor. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense. He argued in his defense. He's not a rollover guy. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, now Festus is the new Roman governor here, okay? Felix was the old Roman governor. He's gone. Felix left Paul in prison. Festus is now the next Roman governor. He's new, and he's got a little politicking to do here, and you're going to see it happen right here in this verse. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Right, he's trying to do these guys a favor. I'm going to bring your enemy to Jerusalem. This is politics. And you guys can take care of him. But Paul said, I'm, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Right, so he, Paul smells a rat here. Here's a Roman governor. He's about to serve Paul up to a sect, to a group within the Roman world. These Jews who are hostile to him, he's about to do them a political favor and serve Paul up and let them go ahead and eat him and kill him. And Paul doesn't just roll over. And say, well, you know, I think I've already written, yeah, by this time I've already written Romans 9. God is sovereign over all things. So I guess I ought to just go with the flow, right? Does sovereignty mean go with the flow? Does sovereignty mean that since God is in charge of everything, you don't need to, you don't need to think about anything that you do. You don't need to make any decisions. You don't need to plan anything. Well, apparently not. Apparently for Paul here, if you do, Festus, what you just suggested be done, and I go along with that, I'm a dead man. I appealed to Caesar. He understood his rights and he understood the law. And within the Roman system, he appealed to Caesar. Derek Thomas says, Christians and Christian organizations are at liberty to use all the legal means at their disposal, appealing court decisions if necessary, when accusations of illegality are, are cast in their direction. Such accusations need not be accepted simply because it might be viewed as a bad witness to employ legal counsel in one's defense. Now, I'd be interested if I talk to Bill or some of the other attorneys around here. It's interesting, when you, when you engage the defense process, there is, a, there is a process. It is a legal system. There is a way to go about doing it. Sometimes the way to go about doing it looks like you're the aggressor. Now, you're defending yourself, but you've become kind of aggressive in this. And so for Christians, that can be a, an odd moment, right? If we've got this rollover plan, this turn the other cheek, just be silent before your accusers, then if somebody just decides to roll over us, we just, you know, the Christian thing to do is what? Just to be forgiving and let them roll over you. That sounds like what we ought to do, right? And I'm not saying that's not what you shouldn't do sometimes. But this is recorded in scripture. Paul doesn't just go with the flow. Paul doesn't just let other people make decisions about his life just because, well, they're an authority and they're... Uh, uh, Paul made use of the legal system. And there's going to be times in your life where it wouldn't be inappropriate for you to make use of the legal system. Well, what about my witness? Well, ask Paul, what about his witness? I think sometimes defense of hostility involves legal processes. And, and it's not wrong for Christians to do what's legally allowed for you to do. Obviously, you've got to be led by God as you do that. Paul defended his integrity and the motives of his ministry. And Paul didn't just defend his belief structure, although I will share that next week. Paul defended the integrity of his own life, right? The, the Corinthians, and he'd just come out of this season with those guys. 
He wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, for we are not, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Yes, we have. Although you say that we haven't. Yes, we have. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Later on in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. This is Paul on the defense. The word for defense here that gets used is not just an apologetics for the Christian belief structure. It's Paul having to defend his life being questioned by others. And, and it gets a little ugly, right? You look toward the end of 2 Corinthians. You know, Paul may not be the poster child for some of this, but, but Paul is who he is. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19. He says, uh, well, I'm going to back up to verse 15. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. <laughs> did I take advantage of you, though any of those, through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we act? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did, did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that you have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding. And later on in chapter 13, he concludes and says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that, I, that if I come again, I will not spare them. And how, how many of us, you know, this, is, this is Paul who's playing a role of leadership in the Corinthian church. There's accusations flying about him. At some point, he doesn't just roll over and say, hey, you know, just the lumps of leadership. People are going to say stuff. At some point, Paul says, hey, if I come again, the guys with the big mouths better have two or three witnesses ready to establish everything that's been said, and I will not spare them. He didn't roll over. There's a place for defense. Paul openly and honestly defended himself when he was accused. Not always, I'm sure. Lots of accusations he let go. Paul defended the oratory and the wisdom of his message in 2 Corinthians 1. Paul defended his right to receive offerings from those he ministered to and also his freedom not to. Paul said, this is my defense before you. Listen, is it only me and Barnabas who are not allowed to take up offerings for us? Is that the way this thing works? Or you go back and read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's what Paul's pointing at. Paul defended his decision-making and whether he was natural-minded. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. He was accused of wishy-washy thinking. You say you're coming, you're not coming. You change your plans, Paul. What are you doing? Yeah, you're praying about these things. You're doing these things. Oh, okay, well, here's why I did what I did. And he explains himself to them. Paul called fouls. This is a challenge. How many of you guys, how many of you guys like to play basketball with friends? Not enough of you. Okay, let's get to work on that. But it's a strange thing to play basketball with other Christians. It's just strange. Um, it's strange for me. Maybe I have a, a hyper conscience in the wrong direction here. But, I, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm violating brotherhood if I call a foul on you. You know? I, mean, I went, took the shot. You, you, you fouled me. But, you know, I don't come down and go, foul. That was a foul. Foul. And you got a few people who do that, but there's, some, there's this underlying current that, aren't we all Christians here? Aren't we supposed to be walking in forgiveness? <laughs> it's like... You know, we just kind of let that stuff go. You know, and, and if it gets brought up, somebody else calls the foul. Maybe there's blood dripping off the side of your face. Somebody else calls the foul and you're like, no, 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 it's all right. Just run down the court, you know, keep going. <laughs> all right, Paul, if you played basketball with Paul and you fouled him, 
he'd have gone, foul, jeez. Did everybody notice that or just me? Foul. Okay, watch what he does here. Chapter 23, he gets called before the Sanhedrin, the council, Jewish council. They don't like him. This is a hostile meeting. Chapter 23, verse 1. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul turned the other cheek. Did you read ahead? He didn't turn the other cheek. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law? You order me to be struck? Paul called fouls. You're out of bounds. You're doing the wrong thing. You are wrong. And I'm not sure what the whitewashed wall, I mean, I don't think that was a compliment. I mean, you can spin this, interpret it however you want, but I think... I think Paul was saying what Paul wanted to say, right? Not only that, he threatens him. You strike me, God's going to strike you, whitewashed wall. I'm not sure what he sounded like, right? I'm reading into that, but I'm suspicious here. Chapter 24, different setting before Felix, another set of accusers. They've come with a list of things that Paul did wrong. Verse 10, when the governor nodded, for him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a great, you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Uh, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. I and mean, these guys have concocted a story that probably Paul would have had to have been there for months. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city, all this stirring up. This guy here, he's turning the whole world upside down. Paul says, there, was, there were no disputes. This stuff never happened, right? So you stand before and you give your story and Paul listens to you present. This is what Paul did. I did not. That's what Paul said. Governor, this stuff never happened. The stuff that they're saying, it never happened. And this is one of my favorites. Paul actually, what I call, techniqued people, right? Paul, you know, you guys know this. When you're, when, you're making, when you're out to win an argument, you use techniques. You don't just use information. You use techniques. I mean, if you're an arguer, you know exactly what I mean by that. Right, well, listen to what Paul does. He's with the Sanhedrin. This is a group of Jewish leaders that are there. Verse 6 says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, He cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and uh, and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Okay, now I don't know what you're thinking here. Was, Was that a very Christian thing to do? Right? Because we, we, I don't know, we have an interesting view of how to handle conflict and how to deal with defense, etc. Paul walks in and figures out pretty quickly. He looks around. Some of these people, he knows who they are. And so he knows uh, Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, and he makes his speech and immediately he throws an issue in the middle of the floor that these two guys have been debating for years at the heart of the disagreement between being a Sadducee or being a Pharisee was your belief in the resurrection. Paul knows this is the issue that separates this room. And he threw it right in the middle of the floor on them. <laughs> and he said, okay, you guys fight over that. And all of a sudden, some of the Pharisees are going, you read the rest of the passages. Some of the Pharisees are kind of like, well, you know, who knows? Paul could be right. Maybe he's got something from God. <laughs> all of a sudden, everybody who was against him, half the room thinks, well, maybe he's okay after all. He techniqued them. As a matter of fact, he kind of owns it. I love this later on. Chapter 24, is he's before, now his later trial, different situation. He's before the governor. He's having to explain himself about things that he may have done wrong. Chapter 24, verse 20, he says, Or else, <clears throat> let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Right, this previous meeting. Well, well, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it's with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. All right, so I admit, okay, I did that. (laughs) 
But Paul wasn't beyond giving a defense of himself. Uh, let me just soften the edges on this a little bit. Paul before officials was different than Jesus before officials. Right? Do you remember Jesus before these same officials? Before the Sanhedrin and before Roman uh, procurator Pilate. Right? So you have Roman government and Jewish government. Jesus stands before the same sets of leaders. But they can't get Jesus to speak. You remember that? Jesus is being accused of all kinds of things and, you know, he doesn't respond with whitewashed wall terminologies. They have to drag words out of him. But do you have nothing to say in your defense? Pilate couldn't believe it. Do you, do you know that I have the power to put you to death? You're going to stand there and say nothing? Listen, Jesus was accomplishing the gospel. And the last thing in the world he was interested in doing was talking anybody out of killing him. That's not Paul. And for you and I to pick up what Jesus did in that moment, Jesus is fulfilling scripture's prophecy about the, the lamb who was silent before its shearers. Jesus, Isaiah said that, the people actually needed the aid of having their eyes smeared so they couldn't see accurately they're about to kill the Messiah. Because if they could see that accurately, who would have killed him? We're actually killing the Son of God. Well, let's not do that. So Jesus isn't before these officials to make a case for himself so that he can say, hey, well, let me just do a few tricks and explain a few things so that you can fully get who I am and therefore not kill me. There was, there was a reason why the most important thing for Jesus to do in this moment of his defense was to be quiet. Because that's what furthered the mission of God in his life. But that's not Paul's situation. And Paul responds differently. Which raises this question about Paul. What, what motivated Paul's defense? Why did Paul speak defensively? What motivates my defense or your defense when we feel like we're being attacked? Well, we already learned some things about Paul from his visit with the Ephesian elders. This, Paul was a servant. Paul was a humble man. Paul was a man who didn't regard his own life as precious to himself. So he, he's not trying to build his own little personal Paul kingdom by responding to other people's comments about him. Paul doesn't have his back up over being criticized with the idea that how dare you criticize me? People don't, do you understand who I am? I am much greater than your criticism. Do not bring me low. Do not make me feel questioned. I am somebody. I am superior. I can't believe you'd say that about me. How many of you said that to people? I can't believe you'd say that about me. Well, you know, next time somebody says that to you, just say, well, I don't know. I've read about the doctrine of depravity. It made me suspicious. Well, you should have a higher opinion of me than that. That's, what, that's what's being said. That is not Paul's defensiveness. Paul's not defending anything here for the sake of his own being appreciated by people. But Paul is this. Paul is a representative of the living God. Paul represents righteousness. Paul represents the gospel and its righteous claims. So I think two things are happening here. Next week, we'll look at Paul defending what he believed. Paul defended himself and he defended what he believed. When you go on the defensive, why, why are you on the defensive? What are you seeking to defend when you go defensive? Well, when Paul defended himself, I think what he was defending was his ministry, the presentation of the word. I will not let you dump mud all over me and therefore affect my ability to proclaim the gospel. If you have, if you have misjudged my motives and you have stated things that I have done that are not true and you have made me out to be a person that I am not, that will damage my ability to preach the gospel to people. I will defend myself. Ultimately, Paul's defense was for one thing. He was defending the ministry of the gospel. 
which raises a question for us. When I become defensive, is that why I'm defensive? Am I defending my reputation for the sake of how I want you to feel about me or how I feel about me? Or am I defending the gospel and the ministry of the gospel? Jesus was defending the gospel by being quiet. And that might be how God would have some of us defend the gospel. There may be moments where somebody's saying this and accusing that and and speaking this, and God may lead you to be quiet before your accusers. No, no, don't do that because you have a fear of man problem. Well, you know, I just, you know, I just don't speak up in moments like that. I'm just, that's you. It may be that God wants you to speak up. It may be that God wants you to say, well, I do need to say this and do it like the scriptures say, respectfully and gently. But to be able to say, listen, what you're saying, that's not accurate. That's really not what happened. That's not what I did. That's not what anybody I know did. Uh, and, And this is what I did. And this is why I think it was right. This is what I said. And this is why I think it was right for me to say that. It may be that God's calling you to speak up. There are moments in which Paul spoke up and it was the ministry of the gospel that he was concerned about. And so therefore he spoke. And there were moments where Jesus was silent and it was the ministry of the gospel that he was concerned about. And therefore he was silent. So if you're not going to go defensive, it needs to be for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. Our lives as ministers and how people are interpreting our lives and the message that we proclaim, that it's not distorted and that we're speaking it accurately. Now, let me do this just for a couple of moments here. Eric, you can go back, come back up here, buddy. Peter linked defense to the word hope. Be prepared to give a defense of the hope that is within you in the day that you feel like you're about to be harmed. Right? Paraphrase of First Peter. Be prepared to give a defense of the hope that is within you in the day in which you feel you're about to be harmed. Now now think honestly with me here. Think of the moments when you have become the most violently defensive in your life. Think of those moments. Think of the moments when you have felt attacked, you have felt come down upon, you have felt harm is coming your way and you came out swinging. How much hope did you actually have in that moment? Not much, right? You were more like a tiger in a cage. You were more aware of harm than you were of hope in that moment. And listen, this is is where some of us live. This is where we've got this equation so terribly wrong. We are defensive, not like Paul and not like Jesus was defensive, We're defensive because we perceive someone's about to harm us and we're trying to protect ourselves. That makes us defensive. But isn't this just a great passage? It's a wonderfully liberating passage. Listen carefully. Let me just let it soak into our souls here. Who is there to harm you? If you're zealous for what is good. And even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed, right? There's hope even in your suffering. The threat of being harmed, it doesn't take your hope away. Because the hope that Paul spoke about four times, four times Paul's going to speak about hope in these coming chapters, is the hope of the resurrection. The hope that you have entrusted your life to a God who resurrects the dead. So I don't know how bad your situation can be, but isn't, isn't being dead like the worst of the bad situations? Right? It's like, I mean, there's unhealthy, there's poor, and then there's dead. I mean, it's kind of like farther down the scale. Not like you don't have enough money. You don't have any money. You're dead. Not like, I don't feel good today. Well, you don't feel anything. You're dead. But what about the God who can step into the worst situation and show this about himself? Here, everybody watch this. I'm greater than that. Watch. And Jesus Christ goes into the ground, murdered by men, And God reaches over and touches life and animates life once again. 
And God says, listen, if, if I can do that with the worst situation, I, I can get you to the end of the month with your checkbook. Makes sense, right? If I can touch your body and give you a new body like I did with Jesus, I can, I can manage your health all the way to the end. Makes sense, right? Listen, when you and I are the most animated and desperate and defensive and attacking others who attack, it's because we've lost our hope. Let's stand up together. Lord, we open this service today singing about a rock that doesn't move. Singing, Lord, about shifting sand around us. But yet there's a rock that doesn't move and our, and our hope is set in him. Lord, some of us today, Lord, venturing into being defensive, Lord, we are, we are aggressive. We are, we are murderously aggressive in our defensiveness, Lord, because we've lost touch with hope. Lord, make us to be as those whose hope is in the God who brings us the gospel. The one who was silent to accomplish the gospel and the one who spoke up even if it cost him his life because his hope was in the rock that doesn't move. So Lord, when there's a day and an opportunity for us in the future that we would be called to give a defense. Lord, may it be a defense of the hope that is within us. May it be an explanation for the confusing arrangement that where harm appears in our lives, hope overwhelms it. Our hope in you is greater than any harm that we have perceived. Lord, may we be ready to defend our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.